As our kids are leaving, I want to give you just a, kind of a quick run-by of what we've got going on next weekend. We've got a pretty busy weekend next weekend. Our ladies' night is with Mandy England. If you haven't, weren't here last week, David and Mandy England and their family are here. They live in Thailand. They're some of our first missionaries that we sent out, and um, they're back on furlough for May, and we're just kind of keeping them a little busier than we probably should. And uh, they, uh, Mandy's going to be teaching our ladies this Friday night. Uh, Saturday morning is a men's prayer breakfast, and David will be there leading that. And then Saturday, we have an all-day youth group event that will be here as well. And then Sunday, if you're a guest, uh, you've been coming maybe for a little while, but haven't gone to starting point, haven't been around much, uh, we are just inviting you to pizza with the pastors. And so that's, we're going to be in the cafeteria over there. Uh, having pizza with you and any questions you have about the church. If you have questions about starting point class, I'll be starting in June, things like that. We would love to be with you and answer those questions. So go ahead and mark that on your calendar as we have pizza with the pastors uh, next Sunday. Well, Paul Tripp, one of my favorite authors, has this analogy that I thought was super helpful. He says this, and it'll be on the screen. Imagine that you were given a brand new home. That's a good day. You're given a brand new home. It was beautiful in every way. Imagine you're excited as you open the door and walk from beautiful room to beautiful room. Imagine your gratitude and joy. So just picture that. Now imagine that for all of its beauty, there is a grave problem with this wonderful new home. A malevolent and deceitful killer lives there as well. However, however harmless he may seem at times, he is out for one thing, to do you harm. Would you not do everything to get him out of your house? Would you ever consider finding a way to make it work for him to live there? So it is with sin that remains. Sin is always harmful, always destructive, and never good. Sin is never something that you should find a way to live with. Sin is never an acceptable occupant in the home that is your heart. Sin must be destroyed. It must be put to death. But how? But how? Well, our text is we're walking through the, the book of Ephesians, answers that question today. If you'll open up to Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians really focus on doctrine, how we live the life, who Jesus is, and, and, and what that means. And then the, the last three chapters of Ephesians is practice, how we live out that doctrine, how we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our first point today gets at the how of killing sin and being aware of it. Point number one, indwelling sin is more serious than we may think it must be put off. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them. Do to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Indwelling sin is more serious than we may think it must be put off. Paul takes the old life of sin and the new life in Christ very seriously. This is the old man of being in Adam and the new man of being in Christ for those who are in Christ. He speaks with stark terms about the sinful flesh and who we are prior to conversion But get this, who is his audience here? Whom is he speaking toward? To, it is believers. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the Ephesian church. He is saying that there are some believers that are living in a sinful pursuit that belongs to the old, to the old self. He's saying that there is a fundamental break that a believer must make with their past life. So today's passage And Ephesians 4 is a warning. It's a warning to those who are followers of Christ and are yet not taking sin seriously enough. Paul calls this living in sin walking as the Gentiles. Remember, the audience he's writing to are, in fact, Gentiles, but they were, Ephesians 1, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and given the Holy Spirit. So they must not live like they used to prior to knowing Christ. They must not live like the old self. This is a relapse or a backsliding or a spiritual stagnation drift toward evil, whatever you want to call it. Now notice in verse 17 and 18 the link, though, between the sinful mind and the sinful hardened heart mind and heart linked together. They go together. Our thoughts are rooted in our heart. The old self lives in the, what it says, futility of the mind. This is speaking of foolishness. Romans 1 verse 22 explains this even more. You could spend time in that whole text. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Kent Hughes puts it this way, the more They suppressed the truth, the less capable they became of discerning spiritual reality. These are believers. The more they suppress truth, the more they they cannot understand and discern spiritual realities. That's who they were as Gentiles. But the foolishness and futility gets worse. It says darkened in their understanding. There is a drift. It is not just foolishness. It is a darkness. It's a going toward what is evil, vile, immoral. The foolishness and darkened understanding is then linked with alienated from the life of God, the life that God provides. This is a walking away from God. This is as Psalm 1 talks about this this drift of walking in the counsel of the wicked, and then then the person kind of stands and and lingers about the counsel of the wicked, and then they sit, basically becoming the wicked. They become the scoffer. They become the mocker. That's the drift going on here that we see. Paul's already clarified the life 
apart from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says that they're dead in sin, following Satan, children of wrath, and sons of disobedience. They're without hope and without God in the world. And Paul is concerned that God's people don't live like they're not God's people. Paul's concerned that those who were once prisoners of sin and Satan aren't going back into the prison trying to put the shackles on and trying to put the old prison garments on. They're not walking around with bright neon colors or the pinstripes or whatever. They're not putting on the prison garments. And he's like, some of you guys are. You're living as if you don't know Christ. He's very concerned. And what is the root of all this? Why do they live foolishly in the futility of their mind? Why is their darkness and their understanding walking away from God? It says, due to their hardness of heart. That's a super helpful category for us to consider. Our foolishness of mind is a heart issue. Our darkness of mind is a heart issue. Walking away from God is a heart issue. A hard heart is a really big deal. We saw this when we studied uh, uh, Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 13 says God's people honored God with their lips or with their mouths while their heart was far from him. So we can be singing all day long. I've decided to follow Jesus. I, you know, in Christ alone. We can do all this. I can preach up here. We can do ministering in community group, teaching children's ministry, whatever. We can do all this stuff that honors God with our lips and have a hard heart. Friends, this is a massive warning for each and every one of us. Is our heart hard? It's a category we may want to even consider today. Is our heart soft toward the Lord, or is it hard toward the Lord? Am I sensitive to the Spirit, or am I quenching the Spirit? In the places where we have hardness of heart, areas of our heart that are hard, those are the areas where we're living in the old man. That's, those are areas where the old self still lingers. We're living with the enemy. We're feeding the flesh. We're showing hospitality to the demonic. Let's continue to look at how Paul describes the old self, the old man, who we are in Adam. Verse 19, they have become callous. Note the progression, foolish, futile mind, to darkness, to alienated, to hardened heart, to just numb. They're just numb. One commentator says this is like petrified. You've ever been to like petrified forest? I've never been, but I've, I've seen pictures right? So these trees used to have life. They grew really tall, and now they're hardened. They're dead. They're rocks. Friends, how is our heart? Did it once have life? Did it once care? And now it's numb? Is our conscience seared? Our, is lying, which was a big deal in the past, now just normal life, deception? And let me just say, de- a deceptive life. I've lived this. I remember as a teenager trying to see my, my parents, and it was exhausting. What lie did I tell, and when, and who? Was that dad or mom? And like, it was just absolutely exhausting. I remember, I've said this before, my parents, when they used my full name, Michael David Seaver, I knew something was coming. 
I remember like mom, my mom's here today. She, she, her saying, Michael David. And I'd be like, oh, what did she find out? (laughs) That was my thought. It was exhausting because I was in bondage to my sin and my heart was hard. Claiming to be wise, I was a fool. Friends, for some of us, this is just a slow fade. This is small compromise that leads to massive change. Friends, is that sin progression in your life right now? Are you numb or more numb than you were last week or the week before or a year ago? When you think about a vibrant relationship with Jesus, do you have to look back six months or two years or ten years ago? Man, I was living for the Lord then. Do you only talk about what God did in the past, but right now there's just no current pulse of what God's doing in your life? Are you numb to conviction where you can't even remember the last time you repented to a spouse, to a roommate, to a child? Is your walk with God dry and you sort of don't even care? Friends, Paul is is pleading with you. He's warning you. God is pleading with you and warning you to repent. Turn to Christ. It is not going to go well with you if you continue this hardness. Verse 19 continues. It says, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. It's an interesting picture of this giving themselves up. Have you ever been uh, like playing in a sporting event or watching a sporting event? There's maybe 10 minutes still left on the clock or five minutes on the clock, but you can tell one of the teams have given up. Like they, the energy's gone. They're not even trying anymore. They've given up. Friends, that's the picture here. These people are just giving up to sensuality. They're not even trying anymore. I know I'm going to fail again. I know I'm going to click on that again. I know I'm going to have these perverse thoughts again. Why not just give in to the flesh? It's good as done. Friends, that's a lie. That's not believing that the Spirit of Christ who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Romans chapter 8, dwells in you. The third person of the Trinity dwells in you. There's a reason they call it deceitful desires. Deceit is a lie. Satan loves to whisper lies to believers all the time. Oh, friends, let us not be numb. Let us not believe the lie. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're united to Christ. So lust or pride or failure, that's not your identity. Friends, no matter the sin you struggled with this past week or this past month, that is not your identity if you're in Christ. You're adopted, you're loved, you're cared for. It's not inevitable that you will fail. Don't give up. Confess, repent. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He's faithful just to restore you. But then notice in the text that Paul links sensuality to greed. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Think about that for a second, how sensuality 
and greed are actually linked together. Sensuality displayed in lust, adultery, fornication is essentially an, an I want mentality. I want what I want, and I don't care what God says. I don't care what other people say. I don't care how much it hurts me or hurts the other person. If you just want to get a case study in that, read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Proverbs speaks a lot about this. The adulterous woman who wants the man, the man who wants that adulterous married woman. Proverbs chapter 7 links sensuality and greed. Look at 7 verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her, follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. She wants him, he wants her, both die. It's like the way Native Americans would sometimes kill wolves. They would take a knife and basically make a, this is kind of crass, but a blood popsicle. They'd take the end, the hilt of the knife, put it in the ground, have the kind of blood popsicle that had the blade in the popsicle, and the wolves would come and start licking the blood, and eventually they're cutting their tongue. They're cutting their tongue, feeding on their own blood, getting what they want, and dying at the same time. That's what sensuality and greed do. We're getting what we want and dying. Getting what we want and rotting in our heart. And let's just note that sensuality and, and sex outside God's good boundaries of marriage is lust not love. It can only and ever be lust, not love, because God defines love. It's committing to a oneness of body, but not a oneness of bank accounts, not a oneness of schedules, not a oneness of priorities, not a oneness of here's my entire life. That's what the the marriage covenant is. It's a oneness, not just physically, it's a oneness of everything. That's the beauty of sex within the boundaries of marriage. It's fire within the fireplace, not fire within the dining room. A note from this passage that sensuality, which is connected to greed, does not satisfy. It always wants more. Look at the text. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice. Look what it says every kind of impurity. Our sinful hearts and minds think that we can be in control and that at any point in time we can start pumping the brakes and we'll be fine. We got this sin under control wrong. Friends, we deceive ourselves if we think we can handle and manage our sin. We're idiots at that point. Claiming to be wise, we become fools whether it's lust or pride or gossip, this text says that sin will take us further than we realize into every kind of impurity. It's what Romans 1 says. And friends, Romans 1, oftentimes people just think that, man, if God's going to get you, like he's going to zap you with lightning bolts. I've heard people joke about that. Oh, you just said something. I'm stepping away. Lightning bolt's going to get you. Romans 1, that's not the picture of God at all. 
how the wrath of God is manifested, as Romans 1 says, is God stepping back and letting you do what you want to do. That's wrath. God stepping back and letting you do what you want to do. Friends, that's us individually. That's us as our culture. God stepping back and letting us do what we want to do and walk in the deceitfulness of our sin, removing restraint. So what's God calling us to do about sin? Put it off. Kill it. So we see in this passage, sin is more serious than we think, but it doesn't stop there. Oh, friends, if you don't hear anything else, this may help. I just kind of have a heart for like teenagers and college students because, man, I remember battling so much with sensuality and stuff like that at that age. You don't actually win the battle with sin by continually focusing on sin. Like, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Like, you don't win. That doesn't work. It's just like if I say right now, like you're kind of hungry, and I'm like, don't think about chocolate cake. Don't think about chocolate cake. Don't think about chocolate cake. What? You're like, oh, I want some chocolate cake. Like that's not how you battle against sin. How do you battle against sin? You look to Christ. You look to the one who's fully satisfying. You look to the new life you have in him. You have affections for Christ and a relationship with Christ. You look to Christ. That's why we sing about Christ. We're not singing about, and don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Don't, don't sin. No, we're singing about Christ. You need Christ. Point number two, Christ, is, and there's only two points. If you're like, oh my gosh, we're only in point two. There's only two points today. Christ is more life-changing than you may know. Put on the new self. Christ is more life-changing than you may know. Put on the new self. Paul's garment analogy is so good. Just think about a day. Just explore your thoughts with me. Think about a day you've done just tons of maybe yard work or hard labor or something. You are sweaty, sticky, dirty, smelly, nasty, sunburned, exhausted. And then you get to get in a shower. And it is a glorious shower. That shower wasn't that good yesterday, but today... It is an amazing shower. It washes you. Then you, you go put on your favorite clothes that are most comfortable, and you feel completely different than you did a few minutes beforehand. Or maybe for some of you that take those hour-long showers, an hour beforehand. You are refreshed. Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about the new life in Christ is one that you are washed. Friends, Jesus washes us. He gives us a new heart. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. This is not just new clothes. This is a new you because you are united to Christ. But the Christian life, there's a a daily putting on of this. There's the daily shower because you're going to stink if you don't. There's a daily putting on. It's not a given. We live in the overlapping world of the already and the not yet. At the cross, Jesus fully died for our sin, paying the price, becoming sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. But though we are declared righteous and united to Christ and positionally seated with Christ, we still have remaining indwelling sin while we live this side of eternity. Peter said Christ bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might 
die to sin and live to righteousness. So he did this, but we have a dying to sin and a living to righteousness. That's a daily thing. That's the putting on. So this life is a life of perpetual dying to sin and perpetual living to righteousness. We'd use the big word that theologians use, sanctification, this, this going toward Christ and away from sin. Another big word, you can impress your friends, mortification. That's killing sin. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But there's another big word. We're just going to big words today. Another word, vivification. This is life. This is a living for Christ. So we die to sin, we kill sin, and we live to Christ, growing in holiness. Back to that house illustration from Paul Tripp. We kick out the murderer. We tell him he has no place in our home. We pack his bags. We don't believe his lies. We don't give him one last farewell meal. We kick him to the curb. We put off the old and put on the new. And you may be asking, how? How do I put on the new self? I'm glad you asked. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let me give you five ways to put on the new self. First is this from this passage. You learned Christ. You were taught in Christ. Verse 20 and 21, Paul's again speaking of the mind. Remember, mind and heart kind of go together. He's speaking of the mind that you have learned Christ. You've been taught. What is the subject? The subject is Jesus. This is like you're signing up for college classes and here are my classes. Jesus 101, Jesus 201, Jesus 301, Jesus 401. Someone says, what's your major? My major's Jesus. Like this is, this is what I'm learning. So friends, have you gotten to know Jesus? Do you know his love, his care, his gentleness, his humility? Do you know Christ's sinless life lived on your behalf? Do you know his torturous death? sacrifice for your sin? Do you know his victorious resurrection raised on your behalf? Do you know that in Christ you died and in Christ you live? Do you know Christ so much so that it's not just academic knowledge? You're not satisfied with academic knowledge. You don't want just head knowledge of a lot of facts that you can do the Bible drill and kill it. Great, here's your reward. No one cares. Friends, do you know Christ? Have you been taught in Him? Put on the new self in Christ Jesus. Live this out. I love Colossians 3, 4. I pray it over one of my kids every day. It says, Christ who is your life. Do you get that? He says, Christ who is your life. Christ is your life. Like, not something else, Christ is your life. I've been crucified with Christ. How's that finished? Somebody finish it for me. Right, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, do you know Christ? Putting on self number two, you're knowing the truth. You are taught in him, the text says, as the truth is in Jesus. 
I love this. This is the only time the Apostle Paul uses only the word Jesus. Every time it's like Christ Jesus our Lord or Jesus Christ or something like this. This is the only time in Ephesians that he says Jesus. He's like, here's what you got to learn. Jesus. You got to get to know Jesus. And it seems most commentators think he's talking about like the gospels and Jesus in the flesh. Like get to know him. Do you know that Jesus who touches the leper? Do you know that Jesus who raises the dead? Do you know that Jesus who is gentle and lowly and says, take my yoke upon you? Do you know that Jesus? Or do you just think of a false Jesus? Do you know the truth of Jesus? Have you adopted that as your standard? Do you fully trust the words of Jesus? Do you believe what his word says and do you live by it? Do you know that truth? Does does Psalm 19 resonate with you when it says, God's word revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eye, endures forever? Does that resonate with your heart, that truth? Is the truth of Jesus your north star, your aim, your goal, your standard? The opposite is suppressing the truth or believing lies or walking toward those deceitful desires. Friends, Jesus is the truth, the foundation and the standard. And friends, Jesus said the truth will set you free. Remember when I said that I was just exhausted as a teenager trying to play that game? Oh, friends, knowing Christ and the freedom in Christ and having a clean conscience is freedom. It's joy. It's rest in him. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So then verse 21 into 22, you're taught in him. It says, put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And it says, put on the new self. Third way we put on the new self, the renewing of the spirit of your mind. Renewing the spirit of your mind. This isn't necessarily talking about the Holy Spirit, what most commentators say. This is like talking about the attitude and inward thoughts of your mind. Paul speaks of the battle of the mind. Friends, the the mind is a wonderful place and a really difficult place. There's a battle going on right now. You guys are battling stuff. Do I believe what he says or not? Some of you Bereans are like, man, I'm going to check this with other scriptures. That's cool. Do that. It's a battle of the mind. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor, in his great book called Spiritual Depression, says this. Have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, and question yourself. How many of you guys have just get internal in your mind, and you're listening to lies? You're just listening to yourself. Here's how you battle depression. Here's how you battle struggle. Here's how you battle condemnation. Preach the truth of the gospel to yourself. Speak the truth. You need a renewed mind. Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then get this. This is the next verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Friends, do you have a practice in your daily life of renewing your mind? If you don't, you're sunk. Like, you're, you're just going to drift. If you don't have some sort of practice on how I renew my mind in Christ, you're going to be drifting toward the hard heart. Fourth, putting on the new life is realizing the dignity of who you are. Oh, friends, the dignity. Look at verse 24. Put on a new self created after the likeness of God. All humanity is in the image of God. We represent him in the world, but there's a fuller imaging by those who know Christ, are created in Christ, are walking in the kingdom, goodness, and dominion of Christ, living in that dignity as ambassadors of Christ, conformed to Christ. And number five, the way we put on the new life is we put on God-like righteousness and holiness. And notice... If you look at the text, just look at your Bible, and you can circle this if you want. It says in verse 24, put on the new life created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. Look at verse 15, rather speaking, the truth in love. Paul's really concerned about true, 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 as opposed to deceitful desire. Friends, God-like righteousness and holiness is knowing the truth. This is maturity. This is stability. This is walking in holiness and honoring God, this set-apartness. What do we think when we get to this? Well, if you flip over to Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3, you see what walking in righteousness and holiness is. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, this is the good life that the Spirit enables and empowers. So Paul Tripp's analogy is not far off. We've been given a new house, new life in Christ, but there is an enemy within our hearts, a murderer. So what will we do about the murderer? Will we try to make friends with our sin? Just kind of coexist with one another. Hey, I'll live in this part of the house. You live in that part of the house. Please don't come on, you know, across the line. I'm going to lock my door when I go to bed and never actually get rid of the sin, but just kind of coexist with it. Or will we just try to ignore the sin and you're like you're walking past the the table and the sin is sharpening the knife set and you're like, surely that's for the stakes later, right? It's not to hurt me. Don't hurt me. You just try to ignore it and you're just claiming to be wise and you're being a fool. Or will you get rid of the murder? Call the cops. Get the Holy Spirit to rid you of any sin that you're aware of. Not that you're not going to fail. You will. But again, Lord, forgive me of that. Repent of your anger or pride or lust or sensuality. Friends, this is purposeful, intentional, getting rid of sin, kicking it out of your heart, going to the cross where Jesus paid for that sin. He paid for that sin. And remember, Paul is talking to believers. The power of sin is broken in all whom he's spoken to here. But the presence of sin remains on this side of eternity. So what will we do about it? 
Friends, we're just going to take an active step in this putting off and putting on today as we put off and put on as we head toward the communion table, as we head toward the Lord's Supper. We're going to pray in just a few minutes just quietly and ask God, Lord, if there is any way in me that is deceitful, there's any way that I have carrying lust or pride or bitterness or whatever it is, Lord, forgive me of that. We're going to put that off, lay aside everything, every sin that easily entangles. And then we're going to put on, we're going to put on truth by remembering the the sacrifice of Christ. The bread and the cup, the bread represents Christ's broken body. And friends, it's broken for your sin. And Christ shed blood that he shed for your sin. Let's not hold on to the sin that he broke his body for and shed his blood for. And if you're unwilling to repent of sin in your life, of of known sin that you're aware of, and you're unwilling to put it off, we ask you to not partake today. 1 Corinthians 11 gives stark warnings to taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You can read that text. For those who do partake, you put on. Friends, think about the goodness and kindness and rejoice in the truth of the gospel. Be reminded that Christ's death isn't just like a a fiction out there. It was for your sin. Christ's life is for you. He dwells in you by the Spirit. Be reminded of his love, his gentleness, his kindness toward you. Some of you just need to realize the kindness of God towards you. He loves you. He's for you if you're in Christ. And even as you partake this communion meal that we call it, you look at these little elements, and you're like, this doesn't feel like a meal. This feels really like a little snackish thing. Friends, it's, it's, it's not supposed to be a full meal. It's supposed to point us to the fuller meal. It's pointing us to the fuller meal. In Revelation, you see the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we are invited, and it's our wedding, and we're united to the groom. We put off the old and we put on the glorious new that points us to new life in Christ. So right now, we're just going to take time to pray. And this is just a prayer of repentance, a putting off, and a prayer of putting on the truth. So I encourage you, either reading this passage or other passages, let's just take some time to put off and put on. Robbie, if you'll come up to play, and I'll head us in just a few minutes toward the tables and open up the bread and cup. And once you get it, you just hold it in your seat. Uh, stay there and we'll all partake together in a while.